We're in a, a series here at Big Valley Grace where we're looking at the last seven words that Jesus said while he was dying on the cross. He was on the cross for about six hours. He was nailed on the cross at about 9 a.m. and he dies about 3 p.m. And during those six hours, Jesus made seven statements and they're all weighty. He knew he was dying. He knew these were gonna be his last words. And so these seven statements, these seven words, if you will, are, are pretty weighty. The first word was the word forgiveness. As Jesus was hanging on that cross, he looked down at the Roman soldiers, those that had put him on the cross. He looked at those that were hurling insults at him and, and, and blaspheming him and all that. And he says, Father, forgive them. for They know not what they do. The second word was the word assurance. As Jesus hung on that cross, we're told about two bad guys, crummy guys that were on either side of, of him, and one of them recognizes who Jesus was. He recognizes his sinfulness, and one of those two criminals says to Jesus, remember me when you get into your kingdom. And Jesus said, I assure you that today you will be with me in paradise. The third word from the cross was family. Imagine the, the bloody, you know, messed up body of Jesus on the cross. His eyes were swollen. I'm sure there was blood running into his eyes and his face from the crown of thorns. His back was a shredded mess. And in the midst of all of this chaos and agony, he looks down and he sees his mama and he sees his best friend, John. And he says, Mom, your son, take care of him, love him. Hey, buddy, friend, I want to make sure you take care of my mother. The fourth word from the cross, Pastor Joel looked at last week, and that was the word humanity. Jesus said, I'm thirsty. And today we're going to look at the fifth word from the cross, which is the word substitution. This is by far the most shocking of all of the, the, the words. Now, usually when you hear the word substitute, it's not necessarily a good thing, is it? Think back to when you were in school, you show up in class and you have a substitute teacher. Yeah. They're, they're, they're kind of like the, the Rodney Dangerfield of the educational world, aren't they? I mean, they just get, don't get any re respect. How about uh, substitute sugars? Uh, I, some of you, bless your souls, you love me, and you've tried to pass off on me a pie Made with that pink stuff, or the blue stuff, or with the yellow stuff, whatever the stuff is. And I'm telling you, I can, I can, I can sniff it at 100 yards. That's got the fake sugar in it, doesn't it? The substitute sugar. Uh, you won't be able to tell a difference. Yeah, I can. I can smell a difference. <laughs> I've had the Razzleberry pie at Marie Callender's. I, I, can, I can tell the difference. Imagine going to a rock concert. You know, and you show up, and you're all pumped and excited, and the guy comes out and says, hey, I got some bad news and good news. The bad news is, is that you two couldn't make it tonight. But the good news is we got a substitute. <laughs> you three. You know, I, you know what? <laughs> uh, anything that comes after, you know, you two ain't going to be here is, is bad news, whoever the substitute is. Or you go to a Broadway musical, and, you know, there's the, the famous guy who's done, you know, 
1,000 or 2,000, you know, performances of Cat or, you know, Cats or whatever. I mean, he's the big star. And when you get there, and this has happened to me, they say, well, he's not going to be here, but the understudy is the substitute for the big guy. It's like you're disappointed, right? Well, today we're going to look at a, at a substitute that is without a doubt a substitute they're going to like, okay? This is a good substitute. It says this in Matthew chapter 27. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. At about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabanara, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Now, now, we don't know exactly what God did here, whether he, you know, brought in some clouds, you know, or a storm came in, or there was a, an eclipse, or something like that. We don't know exactly what happened. But what we do know is that in the middle of the day, it got really, really dark. It got very dark. And in the midst of the darkness, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. In the, in the Greek, it, it literally means he screamed. So you got to picture this. There's the cross, and so far there's been this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what, what they do. Hey, I assure you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Hey, Mom, take care of my friend. Friend, take care of my mom. I'm thirsty. And then he screams, My God! My God, why have you abandoned me? Everything changed when you get to this word. I'm sure it woke everybody up, probably like I just woke some of you up. <laughs> Something is happening at this moment that's pretty shocking. Some of your Bibles say, why have you forsaken me, right? Forsaken means deserted, it means rejected, it means let go, it means abandoned, and nothing hurts more than abandonment, right? Some of you were abandoned by a spouse, and it ripped your heart out, didn't it? Still pretty painful. Some of you were abandoned by a parent as a child, they walked out of your life. And it ripped your heart out, didn't it? For some of you, decades have gone by and the pain is still pretty, pretty amazing. Some of you are abandoned by a girlfriend or a boyfriend. Nothing hurts more than the feeling of abandonment. We've all read about abandoned children, right? And it just tears your heart out, doesn't it? And Jesus, in the last 24 hours of his life, was progressively abandoned by everybody. First, he was abandoned by Judas. Then he's abandoned by all of his disciples. The only disciple that's left at the cross is John. Everybody else abandoned him. And then when you get to this moment, his father abandons him. What's going on here? 
Well, let me give you the short answer. What's going on at this moment is Jesus became my substitute. At this moment, Jesus took the penalty for my sin. At the moment that he's screaming, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took the punishment for everything I had ever done wrong. He assumed my place. He died in my place. He substituted himself for my guilt. The Bible says it like this in 1 John chapter 2. He, Jesus, died in our place. Make that personal. He died in my place to take away my sins. But then John wanted to make sure that the writers or, or the people that received this letter that he had written, he says, and not only our sins, but the sins of all people. That's what was going on at that moment. At that moment when Jesus screams, he's taking on all of my sin. It's recorded for me in Scripture what my sins did to Jesus. You see, it's easy to read that and it's just black ink on a page or red ink on a page and it's something that happened 2,000 years ago. No, no, no. I can see what my sin did to Jesus. And this week, it was a very sobering time for me as I studied this. It became very personal. It wasn't about whatever it is I was going to unload to everybody else. It was about my life. Jesus died on the cross for everybody. That's true. Jesus took all of, you know, the sin of humanity and he put it on himself. He, he died for you. He took the punishment you deserved. He substituted himself. But let me tell you, folks, for me, it was about me. Now, how exactly does this happen? Well, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for God made Jesus Christ to never sinned, be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. One version says it like this. God took the sinless Christ, Jesus, and poured into him our sin, my sin. Then in exchange, he poured God's goodness into us, into me. See, if you ever wanted to know why we Christians come together and sing and hoop and holler and pray to God and worship God and give gifts to God, why our children's ministries and youth ministries and everything we do at our school revolves around God, you just read it. No reason to come and worship me or you. No reason to... You know, come and talk about anybody else. It's Jesus who took our sins and then God took the goodness of Jesus and poured it into our lives. Man, I'll, I'll sing about him all day long. I'll bring gifts to him all day long. I'll talk about him all day long. I got something to talk about. I got something to be joyful about. 
Now, what do we learn from this fifth word? There's a lot of things here, family, and I'm only gonna scratch the surface, but let me give you a few. Number one, we learn that God is holy, and you need to follow this, okay? Put your thinking caps on and pay attention. The Bible says in Revelation chapter four, we're, we're told about these special angelic beings. It says each of these four living creatures, they had six wings and they were covered with eyes all around, even under their wings. And day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Holy, holy, holy. It goes on 24 hours a day, seven days a week. These angelic beings, God got them together, gave them a job description and said, here, here's what I want you to do throughout all of eternity. You got one job. And you're simply going to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty over and over and over again. Why is God having these special angels make this declaration over and over again? Was it for his benefit? No. It's for our benefit. God never wants us to forget that he's holy. Never. Think about it. God could have had these angels declare anything he wanted. Merciful, merciful, merciful is the Lord God Almighty. And that is true, but God didn't have him say that. Loving, loving, loving is the Lord God Almighty. And that's true, but God didn't want him to say that. Forgiving, forgiving, forgiving is the Lord God Almighty. And that is absolutely true, but God didn't want him to say that. Caring, awesome, pick a word. These angelic beings could have said anything, but God said, no, I want you to simply remind the people over and over again that I'm holy, I'm holy. Why? Well, I think it's because holiness is God's greatest attribute. It's the summation of all that, that he is. Now, what exactly does it mean that God is holy? Well, let me start with this. It means that he's different than you. You see, I know a lot of loving people. I know a lot of merciful people. I know a lot of caring people. But let me tell you something. There's nobody in this room that's holy. Because the word holy means absolutely pure, perfect, unique. You see, there's nobody like God. He's, he's totally separate from anything else. Exodus chapter 15 says this, who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? And the answer is, there's just nobody. Now, because God is holy, because he's perfect, he can't stand to be in the presence of imperfection. Because God is holy, he hates evil. Because God is holy, he won't even look on that which is evil or wrong. Habakkuk chapter one says, your eyes are too pure to look 
on evil. Some of you know where I'm going now, don't you? Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. By the way, this is why there's no sin in heaven. There's no sadness in heaven or, or, or sickness in heaven or suffering in heaven because God is perfect. He can't even look on imperfection. So heaven has to be perfect, which means we all got a problem, don't we? Because none of us are perfect. And if God let me up there, heaven wouldn't be perfect anymore. And then if he let you up there, or just a couple more of us, you know what, it wouldn't take long before heaven was just like planet Earth. And this planet is anything but perfect. This planet's a bloody mess because of sin. Beloved, Jesus Christ came to earth, God in human form, to die for our sins. He took every sin ever committed and he put it on himself. That means that every rape that has ever been done, Jesus put that on himself. That means that every molestation that's ever happened, Jesus put that on himself. That means that every murder that's ever happened, Jesus put that on himself. That means that every betrayal that has ever happened, Jesus put that on himself. That means that every evil thing ever done, Jesus put that on himself. Jesus took all the sins ever committed and he put them on himself, on himself. Your sins, my sins. And at that moment, this God who is pure and holy, who can't even look on evil, at that very moment, when all the sins of the world were put onto Jesus, the Father had to look away. He couldn't even look at his own son. He abandoned his son. He forsook his son. I, I tried to imagine to some degree this incredible um, love and unity that there is within the Trinity, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit that's, that they've been together forever since, you know, the beginning of time. And they've been in perfect love and harmony and unity, always together, always loving. Genesis chapters one and two tell us how God created everything. He created us in his own image. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. And so he creates us and he longs to do life with us and he longs that we would allow him to be our God and that we would follow him. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 were just beautiful, beautiful chapters. But something crummy goes down in Genesis chapter 3 and sin enters the world and Adam and Eve sin. And there comes this moment when the father says to his son, son, we love these people. 
And he sends his son to planet earth. And there's his son on the cross, his perfect and holy and righteous son. And there comes a moment when all of my sin was put onto him. And at that moment, God forsakes him. It was my sin. I created that moment in Scripture. I did it. That Jesus, for the very first time, would say, my God, my God, why, why are you abandoning me? Why are you turning your back on me? Why, God? I mean, this is just, a, this is just an unbelievable moment. You see, what's happening at that moment is that the relationship between the Father and the Son is broken. And throughout all of eternity, they've just been in perfect love, perfect relationship, perfect harmony, perfect unity. But Jesus, because of my sin, So the first thing that we learn is that God is holy. You can't even look at sin. The second thing we learn is this, is that sin is ugly. Now in our culture today, most people think just the opposite. They think that sin is cool because everything in our culture, you know, the books, movies, songs, or whatever, make sin look cool. They make sin look attractive. They, they make it look appealing. They make it look like everybody's doing it. Only a fuddy-duddy, you know, goes to church would actually try to avoid sin. Only some loser, you know, would, would, would try to follow the commands of God. In fact, most of the comedies today are predicated on the idea of making, you know, fun of something that, that, that God hates. And we laugh at it, and that's part of Satan's strategy, because if he can get you laughing at something, it lowers your defenses. And then you start to think to yourself, well, it's not so bad. You know, if I'm laughing at this or I'm laughing at that, well, it can't be so bad. And that's exactly what Satan tries to do. Have you ever noticed that you rarely see the consequences of sin in commercials or movies? Think about it. Have you ever seen, say, a Coors commercial or a Budweiser commercial that was all about, you know, a hospital scene where people are dead in the morgue because some loser got behind the wheel of his car and got drunk and then wiped out a family? You ever seen that commercial? No. And you won't ever see that commercial. You think you'll ever see a commercial of a guy who's uh, lost his family, lost his business, and he's an alcoholic? No, you'll never see that commercial. I guarantee it. You'll see the commercials where everybody's having a great time, right? Yeah. You think you'll ever see a James Bond movie? Where, you know, in all the movies, James Bond always sleeps with three or four or five or six women, right? You never see the broken hearts, do you? You think we'll ever see a Bond movie where one of the gals that he sleeps with ends up with an STD? You think that one will make the movies? Probably not, huh? How about one of the Bond girls ends up pregnant? Never going to see that one in the movies. Never going to make a Bond movie about that. Sex in the city, two and a half men, pick it. They make sin look fun 
Everybody's doing it, man, but they never show you the consequences of sin. Let me tell you, the only place you will see the consequences of sin, right there. That's the consequences of sin, is the cross. Hollywood ain't gonna tell you about the consequences of sin. Books aren't gonna tell you the consequences of sin. They're gonna try to get you to do it. Live it out in your life. Justify it in your life. It's when you look to the cross that you see the consequences of sin. I look there and I see the consequences of my sin, you see. The consequence is that God the Father and God the Son's relationship was torn in two. Let me give you three thoughts about sin and its ugliness. Number one, sin is so ugly it separates you from God. That's how ugly it is. The Bible says in Isaiah 59, the great prophet said, it's your sins that have cut you off from God. It's your sins. Because of your sins, he has turned away and will not listen anymore. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what was happening on the cross. The father had to turn away. Sin is so ugly that it separates you from God, this God who made you and created you and loves you so deeply and has such an incredible life plan for your life. Your sin, your disobedience, you know, to God and his word created a, a chasm between you and God. That's how ugly it is. Number two, sin is so ugly it fills your life with guilt. The Bible says in Psalm 38, my guilt overwhelms me. It's a burden too heavy to bear one version says, I'm drowning in the flood of my sin. They are a burden too heavy to bear. You see, one of the beautiful things that God gave you was not only did, you make, did he make you in his image, but he gave you this thing called a conscience. And that conscience lets you know when you do good things. You know, like, like if you see a, a, an old person on the side of the road, you know, and their tire's all blown, and you pull over, and you change that tire, don't you feel good about that? You know why you feel good about that? Because God gave you a conscience. He, he lets you know you're doing the right things. You're treating others the way you'd want to be treated. And God, through his conscience, lets you know, good job. But your conscience also tells you, bad job. You've disobeyed God. And you have that guilt in your life when you know you're doing something that's wrong. It's really a gift from God telling you about sin. And number three, sin is so ugly it condemns you to hell. Psalms seven says, God is a righteous judge and he always condemns the wicked. Is God a God of love? Yes, he is a God of love, and that cross tells you he's a, a God of love. But let me tell you something. Because of sin and its ugliness, it separated you from God. It gave you a guilty conscience, and ultimately, it condemns you to hell. Sin, disobedience to, to God, comes you know, with a huge price, condemnation. Jesus said this in John chapter 3. For God the Father did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. 
Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Listen to me very carefully. The Father did not send Jesus to planet Earth to bring condemnation. He didn't need to because we were already condemned because of our sin. Our sin had already separated us from God. Jesus did not come to condemn you. You were already condemned. Now, Christians will condemn you. Christians are good at that. It's sad, but unbelievable how Christians will condemn each other. But Jesus didn't come to condemn you. <laughs> he came to save you from your sin. He came to rescue you from your sin. And at that very moment that he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was taking your sin upon himself. Let me be really clear. Friends, your biggest problem in life isn't the financial crisis you're in. Your biggest problem in life isn't the health crisis that you're in. Your biggest problem in life isn't the relational crisis you're in. Your biggest problem in life isn't the fact that you're out of work or not making enough money or that your emotional needs aren't being met. All of those are problems and they're legitimate problems, but they're not your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is, is that some of you are at war with God and you don't even know it. I'm not minimizing those other things, folks. But compared to your relationship with God, wow, pales in comparison. I know some of you are thinking to yourselves, man, I'm not at war with God. Yeah, you are. Because every day you wake up, you've got a choice to make. Am I going to live my life according to what I want, my desires, or am I going to live my life according to what God wants, his desires? And every time you make the choice to blow him off or even, un, just I don't even believe in him, and you choose you, <laughs> you're at war. You're at war. And that's not a healthy place to be, is at war with God. So the first thing that we learn is that God is Holy. The second thing we learn is that sin is ugly. And number three, the third thing that we learn from this phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is, is this. We learn that salvation is costly. Romans chapter six says, for the wages of our sin is death. It's separation from God. We talked about that. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Beloved, God's gift to you is eternal life. It's a free gift. God just says, here you go but it's not cheap. And when you look at this fifth word, the word substitution, this idea that here's Jesus being, being torn apart from the relationship with his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let me tell you something. It ain't cheap to give you that free gift. I bought my wife a, a gift. And this morning I gave it to her. Here's a gift. It didn't cost her a thing. 
Not, not one thing. Now, she had a choice to make. Do I take the gift or do I not take the gift? And she's a wise woman, so she took the gift. <laughs> I didn't even have to say, do you want the gift? Now, it was free to her. It didn't cost her a thing. But it cost me something. God has this free gift. He says, look, here it is. It's absolutely free. I'm holy and I, I can't even look upon sin. I am not going to allow sin into my heaven. I can't even look upon it. It is so ugly that it separated us. Major conscience all goofed up. It condemns you to hell. Well, I got a gift, God says. It's pretty costly. And you have a choice. You can take the gift. Or you can say, you know what? Forget it, dude. This is crazy stuff, man. And you're free to do that. I didn't, I, I didn't take the gift for a lot of years. A lot of years. Listen. Somebody had to pay for the gift. Somebody had to pay for your salvation. It's free to anybody, but somebody had to buy the ticket for you. Somebody paid your penalty. Somebody paid the dues, and his name was Jesus Christ. He's the one who paid for the gift. The Bible says it like this in Romans chapter three. God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin, People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. That's how we're made right with God. You're not made right with God because you came to church today. You're not made right with God because you're doing something really nice for your mothers, as good as that might be. You're not made right with God because you put some money in that little basket that went by, as good as that might be. You're not made right with God because you read your Bible. You're not made right with God because you, you know, join a church. You're made right with God because Jesus Christ took all your sin on himself and you've received the gift. That's how you're made right. Nothing else. You're not made right because, you know, you were baptized. You're not made right because you take communion. Those are good things. And those churches that are out there who teach that you have to be baptized to be saved, it's blasphemous. Somehow Jesus dying on a cross wasn't good enough? Are you kidding me? When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let me tell you something. He took the sin in your life upon himself. That's good enough. And anybody who adds anything to that is just flat out evil, in my opinion. Listen to me. Jesus is enough. Should you be baptized? Absolutely. Should you take communion? Absolutely. Should you sing songs to Jesus? Absolutely. Should you use your one life to, for God's glory? Absolutely. Should you give an offering? Absolutely. But there is nothing that needs to be added to the fact that Jesus Christ took your sins. Nothing. You are made right with God 
when you believe, when you accept the gift. There's a story I read this week about two friends that grew up in New York together, went to junior high, high school, college, and they went to law school together. And after they graduated from law school, their lives kind of took dramatically different paths. One of them went on to become a well-respected federal court judge in the state of New York, and the other guy ended up being a, you know, a, a criminal. He got hooked on you know, coke and other things and became, you know, started doing crummy things to support his habit. Well, many years later, the second guy got caught on a fraud charge, and he went to trial and was convicted. Well, the judge throughout the trial was his former friend. And most of the people in the courtroom knew that these guys had been friends as they grew up, and they wondered if the judge would somehow show leniency to his buddy when it came to sentencing. Well, what the judge did surprised everybody. He did two things. First, he handed down the largest fine possible on his friend. He levied the largest fine he could uh, uh, levy against his friend. And the second thing he did was he got up off of the bench, he took off his robe, and he came around, he put his arm around his old friend that he hadn't seen in a long time, and he whipped out his own checkbook, and he said, I'll pay the price. I'll pay the fine. What was, what was the judge doing there? The judge was doling out both justice and mercy at the same time, which is exactly what Jesus did for you on the cross. Both justice, God's holy, and he's got to punish sin. He's got to punish evil and mercy. Jesus says, I'll take the punishment. I'll pay the penalty. I'll, 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 I'll take the rap for what sin did. The Bible says it like this in Galatians chapter three. But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law when he was hung on the cross. He took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. Beloved, nobody's ever gonna love you more than God does. Nobody. I don't care how much your mama loves you. I don't care how much your daddy loves you. I don't care how much your grandparents love you. Nobody's going to love you more than Jesus Christ loved you. He created you when you were in your mother's womb, made you in very image of God. And so long that the relationship between you and him could be restored, he went to a cross. And the Bible says he demonstrated how much he loved you by dying for you, though you were but a sinner. Unbelievable, just unbelievable. So what should our response be to these, to these things, okay? The fact that God's holy, sin is ugly, and salvation is costly. Let me give you four quick things. Number one, obviously some of you need to turn from your sin and trust Jesus to save you. <laughs> That's what this is all about. There's no other way you're gonna get into heaven. You have to receive the gift. You have to turn from your sin and trust Jesus to save you. The Bible says it like this in Romans chapter three. God's way of putting people right with himself has been revealed. It has nothing to do with the law, even though the law of Moses and prophets gave their witness to it. God puts people right through their faith in Jesus Christ. You're made right when you receive the gift. That thief, that 
criminal that was next to him who recognized how sinful he was and said, Jesus, would you remember me? And Jesus said, I tell you today, I assure you, you're going to be in paradise with me today. Some of you today just need to say, God, remember me. God, I received the gift. God, cleanse me of my sin. I believe in you. I don't care what the wording is. God knows what's in here. Listen, it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what language you speak or what color your skin is or what your religion is. I don't care what you've done in life. I don't care. I don't care what it is. Every sin was taken by Jesus on the cross. Pick the sin. Oh, man, you know, I had an affair. He, he died for that. Oh, I've had two affairs. He died for that. Oh, I've had six affairs. He died for them all. This week, I sat down at my desk and began to write out some of my sins from the times that I didn't know the Lord to, to now. And, and, you know, when you start to do that, you sit down, your flesh is involved, and so you only get, like, maybe two or three out. Yeah. You know, and then the Holy Spirit kind of kidney punches you and you're going, yeah, right. And God, you know, the Bible says there's no condemnation for those of us that are in Christ Jesus. But God began to remind me of all the things that he took. All the things that caused him to scream, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the list got pretty long. And some of them were really crummy. Some were crummier than others. But it doesn't matter what the sin is. He died for them all. He for, forgave them all. Second thing, you know, your second response should be this. You need to live in a, in a state of gratitude. Listen, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, we ought to be the happiest people on the planet, right? The Bible says in Romans 5, so now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because the Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. You see, there was a time when I was at war with God. Some of you are at war with God right now, but it's only through that free gift that God offers that you become a friend of God. Your sins have been forgiven. And my sins have been forgiven. And let me tell you something. We ought to be happy, joyful people. It just bothers me when I see Christians and they're just, they look like they've been sucking on a bad persimmon for a week. You know your sins have been forgiven. Yeah, whatever. You know, you're going to heaven. You know, yeah, yeah. And it's like, dude, are you kidding me? How pathetic is that? Man, there ought to be a lot of joy from our lives. There ought to be that. Man, we've been forgiven of our sin. Are you kidding me? Your third response should be this. You need to remember what it costs Jesus to forgive you of your sin. You know, sin isn't something to laugh at. When you're tempted to sin, you need to remember what your sin cost Jesus. You need to remember how serious it is. Listen, some of you Christians, listen to me. And I'm going to count myself in on this. I thought about it this week. I sometimes handle my salvation very glibly. I don't handle it with, with fear and, and trembling. 
I don't, I don't handle it with, 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 with honor and respect. The Father looked away from the Son so that my sins could be forgiven. That, that free gift was costly. And I had to treasure that gift, you know? And for some of you, maybe this is a day of repentance where you say, God, I just need to give my life back to you because I've, I've been doing life my own way. I, gave my, I had someone come into the Welcome Center last hour who said, you know, I gave my life to Christ as a teenager and I walked with the Lord for a long time, but as soon as you began to talk about this moment here in the sermon, I was so convicted because I'm saved. I know Jesus Christ died for my sins, but frankly, I wake up in the morning and I don't care what he thinks. I haven't read his word. I haven't prayed. And today I want you to know, Pastor, I gave my life back to Jesus. For some of you, that might be the decision you need to make. And last but not least, you need to tell others about this good news, right? I mean, this is great news. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a free gift he offers to anybody. Call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. Can you imagine keeping that a secret? I can't tell you how many people I talk to who say, well, you know, my relationship with Jesus is between me and Jesus. You know, I don't talk about it. Are you out of your mind? What do you mean it's just between the two of you? The greatest news ever that Jesus came and paid the price for your sins, that he died on the cross for your sins, and you're just gonna keep it between you and him? That's just bloody stupid. I think people wanna know about it. He goes on, Paul says, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how is anybody going to go and tell them unless they're sent? Listen, God is sending all of you today. And then he says this. That's why the scripture says how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring the good news. I thought back this week to four men in my life who had beautiful feet. They came to me when I was younger and told me about Jesus, told me about the one who took my sin on the cross. Now, I didn't give my life to the Lord, and I was pretty brutal to them, and I made fun of them and mocked them and all that. But God still used that. And they had beautiful feet. Who, 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 were, who, who had beautiful feet in your life? Was it your mom? Was it your dad? Was it an uncle? Was it a grandmother? Was it a friend? You see, God sent somebody into your life. Maybe it's me right now. Maybe for the first time you're hearing this, I'm the one with beautiful feet telling you the story of a God who gave his life up for you. Now, you can reject it. Listen, God wants you to have beautiful feet. He wants you to be the one who goes out and tell the, tells others uh, uh, about this great God. Why don't you just, just, just for a second, close your eyes, okay? Over in the venue, cl close your eyes, just for a moment. And I, I don't want you to pray. Don't, I, I just I want to get you alone. 
Don't worry about who's sitting next to you, your friend or your wife or your husband or your kids or your grandma. Don't, don't worry about any of that right now. Just, just you. It's you and God. And I'm wondering if there's just one person in here who's going, you know what, I've never accepted that free gift from God, never. And for the first time, I get it. I understand what's happened in my life. And, and I want to I receive Christ. I, I want to know my sins are forgiven. And all you'd have to do is just in the quietness of your heart, just say what that thief said. Just say, remember me. Say, I believe. I don't know. Say, I receive you, Jesus, into my life. Cleanse me of my sin. It's not what you say. God knows what's in your heart. And I want you to know, if you'd pray that, if you did pray that, the Bible says that God came into your life and he cleansed you of your sin. He just restored the relationship that was broken because of your sin. He just washed away all the guilt and shame from your life. And you're no longer condemned to hell. You'll spend your eternity with the Lord forever. Did you pray that? Did you say, God, come into my life? Did you do that? Did you do that over in the venue? This is what I want you to do if you're in this room. Raise your hand or make sure I see. If you, pray, if you prayed that, just, just let, me, let me see your, your hand. Yeah, right down here, cool. Yeah, right there, yeah, cool. Yeah, back here. A couple of you back there. Yeah, got you, man, right here. Good, super. Probably some over in the venue. Some of you, you know, you know the Lord. Most of you know the Lord, and maybe God was convicting you to treat your salvation with a little bit more respect and honor. cost a lot to save you. And maybe today is a day of just repentance and rededicating of your life. And some of you might just say, God, I'm sorry. You died on a cross for my sins, and I know it, but I haven't allowed you to be the Lord of my life, and I'm giving my life over to you. Just pray something like that. Today can be a great day. Go home and tell your mamas the decision that you made. Tell your grandmother. And while your heads are bowed and eyes are closed, Pastor Scott's going to pray. But we have a room called the altar room. There's one over in the venue. And the preaching's done, but God ain't done. I know he's not done. He's working in some of your lives. And our spiritual leaders are in the venue. And they'd love to pray with you. Whatever it is that's going on in your life, make it into the venue. If you came to Christ today, go into the venue and tell them. If you rededicated your life, go in there and just let us rejoice with you. Pastor Scott, would you, would you close our time in prayer now?